we surrender our all to you, nothing less than our all to you, Lord God. You are worthy. You are holy. We thank you for your presence in this place today. We thank you for what you are already doing in this place today, Lord God. We thank you that you are meeting each person where they were at. You know exactly what's going on. You know exactly how they're feeling, what battles they are in, and you were there before them. And we just thank you for your kindness and your goodness with us, Lord God, today. We give you all praise. Amen. Amen. Thanks heaps, guys. Go ahead and take your seats, everyone. Lovely to see you on this Palm Sunday. You might not have realized, but today's Palm Sunday in the church that I grew up in. We always would have a whole lot of palm branches around the place on Palm Sunday. And I really liked Palm Sunday because it normally meant school holidays were close. Um, and now I'm a school teacher, so I really like Palm Sunday because it normally means school holidays are close and not much has changed. Um, but I do really like Palm Sunday and I love that we are looking at the armor of God today on Palm Sunday, which might not seem like much of a meetup on the surface, but in case you're unaware, Palm Sunday, the day that we, um, I guess, celebrate or remember uh, Jesus being ushered into Jerusalem as the coming king, as the Messiah, as the anointed one, and everyone was, you know, making this big deal, singing Hosanna in the highest and welcoming him in. And then literally five days later, they were condemning him and crucifying him. He wasn't the leader that they thought he was going to be. They were waiting for this military leader to come and overthrow the oppressing powers once and for all. And he did come and overthrow the oppressing powers once and for all. But in exactly the opposite way to how everyone thought he was going to do it. And that's kind of what the armor of God's about. We fight different to how the world fights. We do fight. We are in a battle but it's exactly the opposite way to how you think it would be. So it's been nice to speak to you. That's the armor of God. I'm going to go sit down and we're done for today. No, not really. Um, I don't have the gift of brevity and I'll never be able to do a sermon that short. My apologies in advance. Um, this passage that we're looking at, it's a really, really powerful uh, passage. I've known this for, known about it for a long time, having grown up in the church, but I'd never really made it part of who I am and part of my rhythms Um, I I think it's a really beautiful passage that God has given us. And there's a number of these which we are given that we can kind of make part of the rhythms of our life, part of the rhythms of our prayer, part of the, I guess, the liturgy of our life, if you want to think about it that way. Psalm 23 is another, the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes, these sorts of things. And I think I'd kind of strayed away from this one a little bit because I kind of didn't like the whole military macho-ness of it all. That's really not me. You know, onward Christian soldiers marching onto war with the cross of Jesus going on before. I was like, yuck. Yeah, no, no, that's not what I said. But actually, when I realized the power of this and Paul taking the armor and flipping it on its head and showing me how battle really looks, it's so different. So we're going to get into this today. I want to start by just reading through the passage with you. Um, We're going to be not looking at the last five verses of what's listed up on there because it's essentially Paul's kind of farewell to the church in Ephesus, finishing off this awesome letter and and series and everything. But you'll see what we are going to look at. So Ephesians 6, picking up from verse 10, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Let's just pray for a moment. eh? Father God, like we were just saying, you are worthy of praise. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you today. I just pray that you would meet people where, that you, where they are at and that you would bring life and life to the full to each one of us, that we would walk out of here more like you than how we came in today. Now let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Amen. I didn't introduce myself either. My name's Rob. Yeah, I haven't met you. Hi. Um, well, you don't need me to tell you that life is more than just messy. Um, we can kind of cover that up sometimes, but stuff can be really hard. Life can be really unfair and really painful and really chaotic and, and, and downright awful sometimes. Um, and some of this is caused by people. You know, you look at wars and you can see people's dirty fingerprints all over it. And we know exactly why they happen. We don't, we're not very good at stopping them happening, but we know why they happen. But then you get some things like earthquakes and stuff, and, and like, who's to blame? What went wrong here? Why did this happen? You know that, you know, the old sort of maxim of good things happen to, sorry, bad things happen to good people? Like, why? We have trouble making sense of why stuff happens sometimes. Who's to blame? Is it random? I mean, the, the atheist would say, I guess it's, it's random. It's combinations of atoms and particles and just the way that everything came together. And sometimes it comes out well for you and sometimes it comes out badly for you. Is perhaps God teaching us a lesson? Every single thing that happens is exactly as God wanted it to happen and he's teaching you a lesson. And I guess if you follow that idea through, it means that if God gave you throat cancer, then praise God that he's always good, but... I guess you must be having to learn something out of your throat cancer. Or what about this whole idea of, is it, is it people's fault? You know, did somebody down the generations, 12 generations ago, do the wrong thing once and now you're reaping the benefits of that? Is that why something went wrong? Or is it the enemy? You know, is it because there's dark forces in the world and all of this stuff? And we can drive ourselves crazy trying to make sense of how and why all of this happens and why the world is so painful You're not going to be able to make sense of it all. But one thing that is really important for us to never run away from is the idea that we live in a war zone. We live in a war zone. We sometimes medicate this with distraction. But if you ask somebody back in a, you know, somebody in a third world country, they don't need convincing that they they, they know that they live in a spiritual battle. If you ask people in centuries gone past, they knew that they lived in a spiritual battle. 
And I would say that we'd be aware of it too, except a lot of the times we're just not looking because we so fill our lives with hurry and distraction and noise that we medicate. We're just soothing. Somebody, I read it ironically on Twitter while I was scrolling and they just wrote, just remember, scrolling is soothing. You're just soothing. And I was like, yeah, I'm like a kid with a dummy in my mouth. My brain, you know, I don't want to have to think about the things I've got to think about, so I'm just scrolling because it's just soothing. But it's not actually helping. We live in a war zone. Many both in and out of the church have removed the idea that we have an enemy because we don't want to think about the fact that we live in a war zone. But it actually really messes with our understanding of the world. The fact that we believe in a God means that we also need to believe that we have an enemy. Without that, it really messes with our understanding of the world. Believing in Satan nowadays is looked at as being archaic and kind of maybe superstitious and kind of downright insane, quite possibly. You know, people picture this little nasty red guy with a dodgy voice and a pitchfork and probably bad teeth and all of that. And it's like, that's not what we're dealing with. But we are in a serious battle. C.S. Lewis said very wisely, as C.S. Lewis always does, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That's in the Screwtape Letters. Really good book if you haven't read it. Um, We can kind of go between these two extremes, either totally ignoring the idea that we live in a spiritual battle and that we have an enemy, or getting so paranoid and freaked out about this that every cat stuck up a tree is the enemy's attack on us and I didn't get a car park at Coles because the enemy was oppressing me today. And, you know, we can kind of get weird about this sort of thing as well. Thankfully, we have the word of God to go with. But we're living in the middle of a cosmic battle and we are agents in this battle whether we are aware of it or not. Now... The good news, spoiler alert, Jesus is one. Yay, that's good. We know that much. We'll be celebrating that next week. And Paul's been making that clear the whole way through Ephesians. But we haven't reached the end yet. It's like, and this metaphor will break down, so don't pursue it too hard. But it's like if you can imagine a football game where we have reached an unassailable lead. We are so far ahead that it is an absolutely certain victory. There is nothing that can be done about that. It can't be turned around. The winner is guaranteed, but the whistle hasn't blown yet. And in fact, some people playing aren't even aware of the score. So the opposition are still trying to land some huge hits, and they are playing dirty. Some people don't know the score. And the opposition is playing dirty. We have the victory, but we can't be complacent. We have to be, and I think this is important, we have to be aware, but not afraid. We have to be aware, but not afraid. And if you find things inexplicably difficult at times, possibly it means you're on the right track. Because the enemy doesn't like that. You sometimes feel that resistance when you're pursuing God. Sometimes the attack is brutal and obvious, and we all know when that happens. Sometimes it's just subtle, subtle deception, lies, misleadings. You know, the enemy only has to, if I'm 
you know, only walking that far. It doesn't take very much. But if I'm walking a kilometer, I only go off track by this little bit. You know, if he can just subtly mislead me, then by the time I get a kilometer down the road, I'm, I'm well off. You know, it only takes a tiny little bit. Like when I was building a deck with my dad and I'm trying to measure the, ple- the pieces off the other one. And if I measured each one off each next one instead of off the first one, each one was getting a little bit further out. And dad's going, what's going on with your joints up here? I'm going, there's a sermon illustration in that. I see what I did. So sometimes it can be these subtle things and sometimes it can even be good things, you know. Temptations like money or sex or power, in and of themselves, not evil, but those usual temptations. But whatever it is, however we're attacked, we're not meant to just accept it and just live these mediocre, hopeless, fruitless lives. We are called to live abundant lives, as it says in John 10, life and life to the full. So what do we do? Thank you, Paul, for giving us this beautiful passage. Let's look at the first bit. We're going to go through this, this passage kind of verse by verse, really, um, and, and get as much out of it as we possibly can. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Ben said a few weeks ago, we've got too many Christian streakers running around who put on the helmet of salvation but forget about the rest of it. It does say put on the full armor of God. We're not just saved so we can go to heaven when we die. There's a whole big picture here that we're meant to be part of. And we're agents in this cosmic battle with a job to do. We need this armor. And it's cool. This bit that says be strong, that can really conjure up the idea of just like be strong. Like suck it up, you know, drink a cup of concrete and be strong. Like just be, be a strong guy. Just be strong. And I, I struggle with this as like a not a big guy who was told in high school like you know, I remember a girl telling me and maybe it actually hurt me a bit because I still remember it. You know, she's like, you're not as masculine as some of the other guys. And I was like, uh, what the heck do you say to that? You know, I guess just because I didn't have a beard as early as other people or whatever. I'm not broad. Be strong. But what that means, be strong, he's, it, it's, it's the passive. So it's saying be made strong, be empowered, be, be strengthened from an external source is what this is saying. This is not your strength. This is God's strength. This is what the armor of God is talking about. So the whole drink a cup of concrete thing, don't worry about that. Be made strong. It's in our weakness. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak, made strong in the Savior's love. So we continue on. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, one of the most effective strategies of the enemy is to convince you that your battle is against people. It is a lie. No person is our enemy. No person is our enemy, no matter how evil they are. Vladimir Putin is still not our enemy. He might, I'm not saying what he does is great at all. But he's not the enemy. There is a whole lot of stuff behind that. Who are these dark forces? Well, Paul and the other New Testament writers actually don't go to great lengths to really explain this to us. The powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. And that tells us something. But that's not meant to be our focus, trying to work all that out. Our focus is meant to be on Jesus. 
What we do know is that there's an unseen spiritual reality to everything that's going on. But we know, as he's told us in Ephesians 2, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Seated in heavenly places. So we know that. And everything else, our job is to stand. So... Let's keep going. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, it doesn't say if, it says when, it's going to happen. You may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Do you reckon he's making a point here? What do you reckon it is? Stand. Yeah, kind of an easy one here. We determine where we stand, not in reaction to the enemy, but in response to Christ. Because Christ has done the work. We aren't meant to be going running, raging forward, going crazy. The enemy knows that if we're doing that, he's actually the one able to determine our steps. If he can just, like if I could just prod Ben and he reacts, then I'm actually determining his actions. I'm still making that response, whether he's coming against me or running away, fight or flight. Instead, this is stand. The world fights by climbing over people, putting people below us or chasing after the wind. This exhausting, you know, trying to reach the unattainable. But we're called to fight by standing. So much, so much easier. When Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like he means it when he's saying that he's going to make it easier for us. Christ has done the work. So we're going to start getting into the armor in a minute here. But there's three things I want us to kind of have in our minds. Kind of like three threads, I guess, tying it all together that we we, we can't lose as we unpack each of the items. And the first one is this. The armor is for the body. We are a collective, not lone soldiers. It has to be remembered. And this passage is often thought of in individual terms because Paul talks about an individual soldier. But we actually lose the power of the message when we think of it that way. Because what he's building off is this idea of a Roman legionary, a soldier. They saw these all the time. This was actually an image of oppression. This would be like speak, you know, preaching to someone in a church in Ukraine and talking about Russian soldiers and their things. This is like a, you know, a pretty hot topic at the time. They all knew what these people looked like, and normally it was an image of oppression. But you never saw them fighting on their own. A Roman legionary was incredibly strong because they were always part of a legion. And when they were part of a legion, they were almost invincible. But on their own, they were very defeatable. So they never fought that way, ever. It has to be the same for us. Kurt Willems, a Canadian theologian who I read and listen to, says, Lone Ranger Christian combatants will not stand against the vices of the powers unless they embrace the reality of their dependency on the rest of God's people. People, we're in this together. I need you for my fight. You need me for your fight. We're part of this together. It doesn't matter which metaphor you use, whether it's the Lego bricks that we got at the start of the year or connecting to each other, building the body of Christ, whether it's the the different parts of the body making up the body, as Paul talks about it in other passages, whether it's the idea of us being soldiers in the army, whatever it is, we are most effective as a collective. I wrote that down and didn't actually think about how that rhymed. I didn't mean it that way, but hey, (laughs) 
I guess that works. We're most effective as a collective. It works. So we're a collective, not lone soldiers. You want to be implementing the armor of God, we do it together. Second thing is, this is God's own armor. You might not realize, but each one of the items, they're actually talked about in the Old Testament. And I've put the verses up there for the Bible nerds like me who might like to go find them, but we don't have time to explore it all. But basically, Paul's super familiar with the Old Testament, and he uses these, these images that people would have already known about. These are described in the Old Testament. Each of the things that we're going to put on are described as things that God wears. So it's kind of like, you know that idea um, in the David and Goliath story, how Saul tries to give David his armor, but it doesn't fit? This is the same sort of thing, except God's giving us his armor, but it does fit. It's not just like armor from God, it is the armor of God. I never realized that until I started researching for this, actually. I don't know how it had skipped me. And the third one, and this is the most important one, and I'll be bringing this one up each time, the armor of God is Christ. And that might sound confusing, but each one of the things that we see finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is each one of the things that we're going to talk about. It says in Romans 13, 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we heard about it was either last week or the week before about taking off our old selves and putting on our new selves, being clothed with Christ. This is the same thing. Putting on our armor is putting on Christ. So let's get into it then. We're going to look through each of the items of the armor of God. The first one is the belt. Now, it's a little bit strange that it might start with the belt. You might think, what in the world is Paul doing here? But I actually think it's really important because Possibly he's trying to emphasize this point. The belt for a Roman soldier went on last. Why are we talking about it first? Strange. But they put on everything else and then they strap on the belt at the end and it holds everything else together. So this passage here, this little bit at verse 14, excuse me, says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So this belt had a number of crucial functions. The first one was that it held everything together. It was the only thing that went all the way around. Truth needs to hold everything else together. Otherwise, it all falls apart. What truth are we talking about? I don't just mean like telling the truth, although that's really important. We mean core truth, core truths. Who is God? Who am I? Who are you? The core truth that God is good, that God is love, that God is powerful. The core truth that I'm made in the image and likeness of God. The core truth that my life has purpose and meaning in God. The core truth about you, that you have unsurpassable worth no matter what I think of you. Those core truths have to wrap around and hold together everything else. Now, I found myself the other day speaking out untruths about myself. I do this way too often, but I noticed in one afternoon, I was getting really frustrated with myself and part of some health things, I've got a really strict diet I have to follow and sometimes I screw that up. And I always reap the benefits of that or the, the lack of. I always cop it when I don't follow it. And I said four times in one afternoon in front of my kids, man, I'm an idiot man, I'm an idiot. And I was like, wow, those are actually really unhelpful truths or mistruths 
to be speaking out, not just in front of myself, but in front of my children. Truth wasn't holding everything else together. Is your life surrounded by those core truths? Do you buckle them on? Other stuff will try and wrap around, like a nasty you know, blue bottle tentacle thing trying to grab around you in the ocean. That's going to happen, but don't buckle them up. Don't buckle them up. The truth has to be buckled around us. Another thing about the, um, about the belt, the heavy pack would be partly uh, that the, the soldiers would attach their pack. They had like a 25 to 40 kilo pack that they would attach to the back of their belt to stop it sort of wobbling around, to keep it tight to the back, and mainly to redistribute the weight onto their hips and lower down to help them carry the burden. If we have truth wrapped around, locked around us, holding our lives together, those core truths, it helps to carry the weight of our lives. We all have burdens to carry. It's not saying we're not going to have any, but it helps to redistribute those and to have it resting on the core truths, not on something that can't handle it, like a pack badly balanced on us. Another thing about the belt, I didn't know this until recently either, the soldiers wore it all the time. It was like a bit of a badge of honor. The soldiers wore their belt even when they were off duty. And that's a reminder to me that there is no off-duty Christian. There is no off-duty for Christ. You're not on when you're here and then off when you're home. It's really hard to remember when my daughter's having a temper tantrum like she was having yesterday. But I'm never off. We are people of truth and of integrity and of authenticity all the time. So for each one of these items, I've got the little, the little image that Mitch made for us, which was awesome. And then the passage. And then we're just going to have a quick question on there for you to kind of ask yourself a little prompt. Is everything in my life held together by Jesus' truth? Or am I cultivating lies about myself and God and others? And if your answer to that is, uh-oh, like, no, I don't get all that right then the good news of this is Christ is the truth. Christ is the truth. It says in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you put on the belt, the belt is truth, and Christ is that belt. He will be that for you. Let's move on to the breastplate. So then the next part of the verse says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. What does a breastplate do? It protects our vitals. It protects our heart and our lungs. And this word for righteousness is this awesome Greek word, dikaiosune, which has a lot of depth of meaning. And we often just think of righteousness as moral perfection, right? That's at least what my brain goes to. Righteousness is just being morally perfect. That's what I need to do. I can't attain it. Jesus did it. Cool. That's easy. There's actually way more in it than that. Dikaiosune means, yes, righteousness. It means justice It means right-relatedness. So the way that we live with lives of integrity and holiness isn't just because Jesus says we should be good little boys and girls. The focus isn't on moral moral perfection. It's on being rightly related to God and people because the way that we live guards our heart. See, no directive from God is just arbitrary. We get these laws. You know, people can think about Christians this way. You know, if they might be like, well, God doesn't want us to get drunk, so just don't get drunk because otherwise it'll tick God off. And it's like, that's the what. That's not the why. 
That's a real problem. If our reason to not sin is because we just don't want to tick God off, like we've got the whole thing the wrong way around. When we move away from God's blueprint for living, we open our hearts up for attack. That's why God wants us to live lives of righteousness, because he wants us to have life to the full. See, if I sin against rage, that sin affects our relationship. If I lie, that works against connection and love in our relationship. That's why it's a problem. The actual lie, it might technically have done no harm. Like if she said, did you eat the cookie? And I said, no, I didn't eat the cookie, but I did eat the cookie. Well, does it really matter? Maybe she already had enough cookie. I don't know, maybe whatever. But, but it does harm us spiritually and emotionally. When Jesus gives us a directive, it's because he's leading us to right relatedness with God, right relatedness with people. Our lives do need to look different. But it's about guarding our hearts and the hearts of all the people around us. Paul's made a big deal of this, about taking off our old self and putting on our new self. So the question we can ask ourselves is, am I in right relationship with God and with people? Am I? Maybe my heart's been under attack a lot lately. Am I in right relationship with people or am I holding stuff against them? And the good news for this is if your answer is no, I'm not in right relationship with God and with people, awesome. Christ has fulfilled this because Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 3, oh sorry, 1 verse 3, you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So Christ is the breastplate. Let's look at the shoes. With the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The word gospel means good news. So when you hear the word like evangelizing, evangelion, it means good news. To evangelize means to good news. Make it a verb. I've been good newsing lately. That's, that's what he's saying. If the gospel that we preach isn't good news, it's no gospel at all. And so I guess we can ask ourselves, does, does my arrival in a, place, in a place bring peace or not? Does my arrival in a place bring good news? And peace isn't the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a person. It's the presence of Jesus. As a father of three kids under the age of five and a music teacher, peace in terms of silence is not something I get to have very much. And it's something I do miss and want. Like I often find myself, I just want some peace and quiet. And that's what I'm like, yeah, that would be nice. But actually, I come to realize that I can have peace in the noisiest of situations and I can also have complete lack of peace in the quietest situations. I've been on family holidays sitting on the beach feeling anything but peace when peace hasn't been living in me internally. And yet I can be there in the middle of absolute chaos in a classroom sometimes. But if I'm aware that Jesus is with me, I can have quite a deep sense of peace. Peace isn't the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a person. And so I guess... Again, our question for this one, we could ask ourselves, does my arrival bring the good news of peace with God and peace with people? And it can. And if it doesn't, it's fulfilled in Christ because Christ is our peace. He's referred to as the Prince of Peace. It says in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. So he is your shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. The shield. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith is something I think we get really messed up because we often think of it almost like a speedo and we've got to try to get it to a certain level. You know, like the movie Speed and they couldn't get it below a certain level or the bus would blow up. But this is like the other way. If I can only get my faith to like 110, then the healing will happen. Just like muster it up a bit more, strengthen it a bit more, make yourself more intellectually certain. That's not what's going on here. This word pistis for faith, it's trust and faithfulness. And so if you read in Hebrews 11, this awesome chapter that I don't have time to go into, called, often called the Hall of Faith, it lifts all, lists all these amazing followers of God, like Noah and Abraham and Moses and Rahab and blah, 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 blah. And it says, and this person who was so faithful and did all this amazing stuff, they were, you know, they were full of faith and it was credited to them as righteousness. And you can read that and be like, wow, that's really cool. I wish I had that faith, but I don't. But if you go back and read each of those people's stories from the Old Testament, I don't know about you, but I don't see lives of intellectual certainty and lives that lacked doubt. I actually see really flawed lives of people who weren't quite sure what they were doing and weren't always faithful, but with what they could, they grabbed hold of God's resources and they stepped anyway, even when they were scared. That's what faith is. It's not intellectual certainty. There can still be doubt there, but it says, I'm going anyway. God sees that mustard seed as a huge tree of faith. So that when God's you know, looking back at your name in the book of life and he sees Zach and he goes, and Zach did this and this and was full of faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Zach might go, yeah, but I've seen my life and it didn't look like it was full of faithfulness at this time and this time and this time. It's just like those guys. It's different to how we see it. So the question we can ask ourselves, where can I take hold of God's resources in the midst of attack? And it talks about flaming arrows here. Now, flaming arrows, they'd, off, they'd dip the arrow in, in pitch or something similar and shoot it off. But they weren't actually a very good battle tactic in terms of trying to kill people because they would be way more indirect, they'd be way less accurate, and they'd often take out a lot of their own people in the process because the archers would be trying to fire over the foot soldiers. But the enemy does this any, anyway. Why was a flaming arrow used? It was because it would often freak out the soldiers. The flaming arrow would hit their shield and they'd put their shield down, which would then make them vulnerable to spear attack. See, a lot of what the enemy fires at you, it's a flaming arrow. It looks way more scary than the real one, but it's made to make you panic. It gets you to put your armor down, gets you to put your shield down, and then you're vulnerable. And we've got to ask ourselves, maybe some of the attack that we're under, is it, you know, a direct dangerous attack? Or is it a flaming arrow designed to freak us out and make us panic more than to actually deliver a fatal blow? Hold that shield and stand. The helmet of salvation it says, take the helmet of salvation. Our mind and our thoughts are protected by the certainty of our eternity. And on our very worst days, sometimes this might be what carries you through. You go, I don't understand what's going on, but God has my future. And this isn't just about going to heaven when you die, although that's awesome. But I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. 
God is coming and rescuing me. I imagine if I was on a boat, one of those like young guys, way too young to be doing this, on a boat about to land at Gallipoli, right? It's just horrendous what they're going into. But imagine if somebody had said to me as I was about to get off, by the way, I've seen the ending. You're actually going to be okay. I will rescue you. I would have gone into that battle with a whole lot of different level of fear and courage, less fear, more courage, than I would have had if I didn't know that. This is what God's saying to us. You might be standing on the boat looking out at some battle that just seems totally, you know, unmanageable. But Jesus is saying, I will be with you. And I, I, you are saved, you will be saved, and I will be with you the whole time. And so that's the helmet we've got to keep on. So we can ask ourselves, are my thoughts submitted to the hope, and hope is confident expectation, that's what it means, of salvation. And it might be, and if it's not, it's fulfilled in Christ. Christ is our salvation says in Luke 2.30, When Simeon saw Jesus as a child, he prayed to God, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is our salvation. And then the last part of the armor, which isn't really the armor at all, it's, it's our one offensive weapon, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yeah, this is the only weapon. A, legion, a Roman legion soldier actually had a spear. Paul doesn't worry about that because we've got one weapon. The word. And Jesus gives us a really good model for how this works because in Matthew 4, when we have the whole narrative of him being tempted in the desert, the enemy came at him with stuff, and what did he say? It is written. It is written. He shows us how to do this. We need to have the word in us. Value memorizing scripture. I've started to do this way more in the last 12 months, just trying to get passages into me they're not going to come out if they're not in there maybe start with Ephesians 6 13 to 18 so the question I have to ask myself when I'm called onto the offensive what can be my it is written in that situation if the enemy telling you that you're a fool you say it is written I have the mind of Christ is the enemy telling you that you're full of fear you could say it is written I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of sound mind. What if the enemy says your life is going nowhere? The best bit is gone. You've missed all of that. You could say it is written. Wait, which one was it going for? Proverbs 4.18, which is the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter till the full light of day. It was in there. I just had to go searching for it a little bit. Right? What about oh, my healing is never going to come? It is written, it is by his stripes I have been healed. This is, our, this is our sword. I'm a mistake. No, it is written, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My sins are too great. It is written, it is by grace I have been saved. Through faith. See how this works? Get these arrows in there, in your quiver. Or Now I've just swapped metaphors. These swords in your belt. Who cares? Whatever. Right? But the point is, what would Jesus say? And our fulfillment of all of this comes in Jesus because Jesus is the Word. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So the Word, little w, that we wield is the Word. Big W. Jesus. 
not just scripture, Jesus. We read the word, little w, through the word, capital W, through the lens of Jesus. And then Paul finishes it off by saying, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. He continues this straight out from the armor because this is what we do once we're in that standing position. So in front of you in your chairs, you'll notice that there's a little blue bookmark. This was my harebrained idea that I wanted everyone to be able to take this. Because this passage, like I've said, is one of these beautiful prayer hooks that God gives us that we can make part of the the liturgy and the rhythms of our lives. And I wanted you guys to have something that you could take and maybe to start implementing in your prayer time. Meditate through each of them. God will show you things about them. Put on the armor of God so that you can stand and stand and stand. Because this is how we fight our battles. Not like how the world fights, but by saying our it is written. By putting on Christ, by being clothed in Christ. So I wanted to make a declaration with you guys this morning to, to, to kind of close. Um, and then we'll go back into, into worshipping if that's cool. Um, and seeing we've made a big point of saying stand, if you're able, can we stand please? Let's stand together. Because we fight differently to how the world fights. This is how we fight, by putting on our armor of God and standing because Christ has done the work. So as long as you can see it clearly enough, and I know you feel a bit of like a high school kid doing it, but I don't care because I'm a high school teacher. We're going to say this all together, starting from when the enemy, all right? When the enemy comes at me with lies, I have the belt of truth, which is Christ holding everything together. When the enemy comes at me with temptation, I have the breastplate of righteousness, which is Christ guarding my heart. When the enemy seeks to lead my feet off course, my steps are instead determined by the good news of the Prince of Peace. Hold on. When the enemy comes at me with doubts, the one who gives me faith will be my shield. When the enemy attacks my mind with hopelessness and anxiety, I remind myself that Christ has saved me, is saving me, and will save me. And I use the word, the sword of the Spirit sorry, to say to the enemy, it is written, just like Jesus did. So Lord God, we just thank you that you have won the battle for us. We thank you that we know the ending and that you win. We thank you for all of the it is written's that we can call upon and use as the sword of the Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Lord God, that the battle is won in you. Lord, help us to put on our armor and to stand. And when the day of evil comes, to stand and to stand and to stand. Because you have done the work. You are so faithful. You are so faithful. And we give you praise, Lord God. Amen. Let's worship, hey?